It's basically creating time and space for the team to review their performance. I do a lot of work in elite sport as well, and it's probably the main difference, I think, between the, the sporting world and the corporate world is review is critical in sport. Hi, I'm Simon Fletcher, partner and facilitator at Leading Teams, and you're listening to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast. Welcome to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast, brought to you by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. Focusing on pharmacy management and ownership, the PBCN podcast supports the improvement and growth of your business performance with insights and advice from a range of industry professionals. The PBCN podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Pharmacy Business and Career Network podcast. I'm thrilled to have Simon Fletcher on the show today. He's a true guru when it comes to managing underperformance in teams in the business world. And today, we will focus on just one tool of many, the situational leadership model. Simon's got a ton of experience in leadership and knows the ins and outs of teamwork and motivation. Get ready to level up your leadership skills as Simon shares practical strategies to tackle underperformance head on. Let's dive in and empower your pharmacy for success. Here's Simon. Simon, welcome to the show. Great to have you on because you've been working with the Guild for a long time to help them develop their teams and ultimately drive high performance. So it'd be great for us if you could set the scene a little. What have you helped the Guild do and why ultimately do you think that the work that they undertake shows alignment with their values? It's been a, a, a relatively long journey. We've been going for nearly six years now, I think, all up. And I guess the the catalyst, Cole McGuire, who's the COO at the Guild, has had a really long-standing relationship with leading teams. We worked with him in his past role at Touch Football Australia. So I started initially working with his team. And basically, I guess our, our work and our model is, is geared around communicating, having real clarity of expectation as a team. And, and so I guess the, the journey with, with the Guild started in exactly that, like Cole recognised that he wanted his leaders to really start to step up and take take ownership and responsibility of how their teams functioned. And then the, the step beyond that was to start to really engage the team in that process. And so now, over the last few years, I've been working with uh, basically with the whole National Secretariat, working with, uh, we're doing whole of team sessions and, and also departmental sessions. And, and as I said, it's basically... Uh, creating time and space for the for the team to review their performance. And, and it's one of the things that I do a lot of work in elite sport as well. And it's probably the main difference, I think, between the, the sporting world and the, and the corporate world is review is critical in sport. They go out and they perform on the weekend. So I've been working with the Brisbane Lions now for six years as well. And so the Brisbane Lions go out and play a game of footy on the weekend. The Sunday, the coaches do a big review of the game. Then the Monday is a review with the playing group. And then from that review, they take in their learnings from the weekend prior and they train those during the week. One of the challenges with the corporate world is they don't play a game and they don't get to train. They're always in the in the game. And so we have a, a the continuous improvement cycle that we talk about is learn, commit, do, review. And so if you haven't got time or you don't create the time, or you don't prioritise the time to do those reviews, then you miss out on the learning and the action and, and the growth that comes from that. And so I guess, in essence, that's what we've been able to do, is we've been able to 
create time and space for the for the teams and the, and the organisation to really review its performance, and then everyone in the team gets to play a role in the actions that come out of that. And the other thing that's that we find is is the the importance of relationships in teams. And again, because you spend so much time doing tasks and and the roles and and you know ticking off your roles and responsibilities every day, we just don't have that time to really invest in the relationships and the the relationships is are what able us to have you know really productive, effective, efficient communication. Creating time and space to review and focusing on those relationships is clearly important to be able to create teams that perform well. But at the other end of the spectrum, let's look at some of those common sources of underperforming teams. In your experience across a range of organisations and industries, are there any common themes that lead to underperformance? There wouldn't be too many clients that I've worked with where as part of their their initial review communication doesn't come up. And that can be in a variety of, I guess, different versions of that. One version or thing that often comes up is people not having the conversations that they should with the people that they should. Okay. And, and again, that's where, you know, the relationship aspect is so important. So that the mutual trust and respect within a team is critical to be able to have those types of conversations, particularly the more challenging ones, you know, the ones that make us feel a bit more uncomfortable. Um, so that, that investment in relationships is a really big part of what we do. Um, the other thing is just that um, ability to be able to create time and space and going back to what I just touched on before, because the, the corporate world, we're always in the do piece. You know, we're always, you know, ticking off the tasks. You know, the language that we use is mechanics versus dynamics. We spend a lot of time on the mechanics, you know, our, our technical skills, the operating systems and processes that we have that we just don't have the time to be able to spend on the dynamics. And so if we can create that time and space, you know, and, and actually talk about how we want to communicate with each other, you know, what, what is effective communication, different communication styles. And, you know, one of the things, one of the tools that we use is, um, is this profiling, which is a behavioral profiling tool. And you, you start to recognize that there are lots of different ways to communicate and it's, not that one's better than any other, it's just different. And so if we can create that real understanding of, you know, the way I like to communicate, the way that you like to communicate, that might be really different. And so if I can understand your style, you understand mine, then it's we're going to be more productive at the end of the day. That's um, common issues leading to underperforming teams across different organisations and industries. But let's move more specifically to pharmacy. What are some common challenges you think that pharmacy owners or, or even retail business owners face when managing underperformance, particularly amongst staff? I've spoken at a lot of the pharmacy conferences over my time, and I've done a fair bit with the pharmacy students as well. And, and it's a question I often ask the group is, you know, who here wants to own their own business one day? Inve inevitably, nearly everyone in the room puts their hand up and I think that there's just a, there's such a difference between being a great pharmacist, but there's leadership involved when you, when you own a business. And so that time and effort to put into leadership, you know, those students go to, go to university for, you know, for however many years they do to get their degree. And if, you know, again, go back to mechanics, mechanically, they're great pharmacists, but then they've got to go into a, a business where they're actually leading a team of people. And so, 
I guess the the thing that's really important and the and the work that we focus on is is trying to create absolute clarity for your people. Okay, so in my experience, most people more often than not try and do the right things. You know, they're they're, they're very they're, they're rare the people that intentionally do things wrong, and so often people don't get it right when they they just don't know. You know, they they haven't got the clarity of you know, what are, what, what are the mechanics of their role? What are the expectations of the tasks that they have to do? And then going again to the dynamics, how do we want to function as a team? What are the behaviours that we want to display as a, as a team? You know, and if I can have absolute clarity on what that is, then it comes down to my choice to whether I do or I don't, okay? And so what that does for a leader, it's much easier to hold me to account when I'm really clear on those expectations and I don't meet them because the conversation you then have with me about my performance isn't a surprise because I knew that that's what I should be doing. And so that's the bit. If, if right from the get-go, you know, a, a small business owner can sit down with their team and, and again, our, our view is that you want to engage your staff in that process, you know, and, and sit down and talk about the type of team that we want to be. You know, how we how do we want to behave as a team and get the team to engage in that process? And what I'll always say to leaders and managers and coaches after they've done that, well, it makes your job so much easier because all you've got to do is hold your people to account to what they said they wanted to do anyway. Well, on that point, holding them to account after they've engaged in that process and everybody's pretty much on the same page and keeping in mind that comment that you just made about rarely do people intentionally do things wrong because I think it's an important point to cover around engagement and ownership etc because it would be easy to assume that underperforming staff just don't care full stop we quite often hear that as a throwaway line oh those people don't care you know it's just a job to them what do you generally see in underperforming individuals in a team in terms of their attitude are they generally receptive to wanting to improve or not our view and our belief is that we want to have what we call possibility thinking. People can change. And I think what you said there before, like people, you know, unfortunately, some people do have bad attitudes, you know, and they, and they just don't care. So as a leader, how do you engage them? You know, and so as I said before, to be able to sit down with your staff and engage them in that process. So rather than you know, coming in as a leader and saying to your team, this is what you'll do, this is how you'll do it. We want to try and engage them in the process. And so once they've got a, a level of buy-in into that, what we're hoping is that trans translates into buy-in to the to the actual, you know, organization or business that they work in. And ultimately I think, you know, and this is where where leadership gets gets a bit tricky and challenging is that that might mean that some people don't, that some people don't want to buy into the to the culture that you want to try and create. And as a leader, then you've got to you've got to make that decision. You know, am I going, am I willing to accept this or not? And I think that's again, they're all the choices that come with leadership. But it's just that for me, it's that I've got to have the conversation because I've got to give that person the chance to change. I've got to give them the feedback. I've got to get them to understand the impact that they might be having on the on the team's performance. I know we we did some work with a, a recruitment agent a couple of years ago and we did a review and there was a 
the, the highest remunerated person in that business was the person who was least living the values. And the owner of the business came to me at morning tea and she just said, you know, what's your advice? And I said, well, you've got to have a conversation with this person. And I said, and she said, but what if I have a conversation with them and they leave and, you know, a significant amount of revenue walks out the door with them. And I said, well, that's a risk. Absolutely. But I said, what if you sit down and talk to them and they don't realize the impact their behavior is having on the rest of the team and they actually want to change and they want to buy in so that you might get a shift. But I said, if you're not even willing to have the conversation and they had, you know, a marketing team, so they had lots of really beautifully presented values on the wall. I said, if you're not willing to have the conversation, then just rip those values off the wall and you just replace that with we're here to make as much money as we possibly can and we don't care how you do it because that's right now what you're telling your team, you know? And so again, that ability to be able to have a conversation with your staff, because as I said, like lots of people don't know the impact their behavior is having on other people until you actually tell them. And so once you make them aware, then it comes back to the choice that I make. So if you gave me that feedback, okay, I can then choose to change my behavior or not. And one of the lines we often use is that you'll behave your way in or you'll behave your way out of a team. It's an interesting point because I might share a little anecdote with people and, and just to drive that point home for you. I've been on the on the receiving end of one of those difficult conversations many years ago when I used to work at a business and there was a, a young girl out on reception and one day she said to me, hey, can we just have a little bit of a chat? I want to have a chat to you about something. And I was like, yeah, sure. What is it? She goes, oh, no, can we go get a coffee? I said, yeah, sure. And we sat down. I said, Em, what, 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 what's going on? What is it? What can I help with? She goes, look, this is really difficult, but I don't like the way that you come out of your office and come into reception and just say things and, and expect them to get done. Like I find it really belittling. And I was shocked. I was genuinely shocked that I was having that impact on her. And I said, Em, you know me, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's that was never my intention. I think I'm just not being conscious. I'm just in the flow and I'm just get it done type thing. And I've, I've lost my manners. And I said to her, you, if I ever do that again to you, you just say, this is what I'm talking about. And, and it didn't even remotely affect the relationship. In fact, it improved it. And, and I was pers personally, as the person who wasn't living up to the values unconsciously, I was really uh, appreciative that the person had that conversation with me. Absolutely. And that's what you hope happens. If my intention isn't to do that, then you make me aware, then I can do something about it. But and, and one of the other things that often happens is what we do is we look for evidence to reinforce a belief we have, so that bias that we have. So if I've got a belief of you, I'm looking for evidence to reinforce that. And so your example there, you might have done, you know, you might have had um, bigger uh, styles or bigger um, times when you've when you've been, you know, really disrespectful in her eyes or whatever it meant. And there'd be other times when it's probably not as big, but it'd be, she would create it bigger. And so by giving you the feedback, as we said before, it makes you aware. You can then, again, as you said, ask for the feedback in the moment. She knows that you're open to it. And so that's where you start to get the progression of the relationships. And I think the other thing, you know, the, the intent for her feedback to you was to help you and her. 
you know, and, and that's the other thing I, I think, and that's why we we spend so much in, in time investing in the relationship aspect is because if we care about each other, then I'll have those conversations with you because I want you to be the best you can be. And so it's that constant work of build the relationship, create the clarity, have the conversation, okay? There's a, a term uh, that we often use, which is artificial harmony. So M doesn't have that conversation because it's, oh, it's just easier not to, you know, and she starts to, you know, build up this, um, you know, really negative view of you and then one day explodes because it's just built and built and built. Whereas she's had the conversation with you, she's made you aware, then you can actually start to do something about it. I want to unpack engaging staff in the process and getting the buy-in a little bit more because it can be often easy to see the symptom or, or the outcome of how underperformance manifests itself in a team. How can pharmacy owners identify the root causes of underperformance in their team? Because, and once they have done so, what, what are some specific strategies they can use to improve performance of employees? When we're facilitating with teams, we create an environment where the leader gets to be a part of the team and they get to have conversations. But for a leader, you know, just to be able to sit down with their team and, you know, if, if pharmacy, you know, might have five to 10 employees, let's say, to be able to get that team together and just talk about, you know, how do we want to be as a team? The other question that we often ask, which is a really challenging one for, or can be a really challenging one for teams is, uh, what are the counterproductive behaviours that we currently accept? You know, you, you may have heard the uh, the saying, the, the st standard or behaviour you walk past is the standard or behaviour you accept. So for a team to be able to identify what those counterproductive behaviours are, no different to what you spoke about before in terms of the consciousness, then we actually talk about that, okay? Invariably, most people know those things are going on, but we just haven't created the, the environment to be able to talk about it. And when we're facilitating that conversation, at that point in time, it's not about pointing the finger at, point, finger at individuals. It's just collectively us identifying that actually that is, that's impacting our performance in a negative way. Then what I get to do as a, as a team member is I might look at that list of counterproductive behaviours and I might go, yeah, I do some of those things. Right. And so through that process, I might say, well, you know, I might have, mightn't have thought it was that bad a thing, but it clearly the team's identified it that it's impacting our performance. So then I might just start to change my behavior. Um, the other thing that it does is it, again, it makes the whole team aware that we all view these things as counterproductive. And so hopefully what happens off the back of that is when someone does it, they don't walk past it. They can actually say, hey, remember we spoke about this in that meeting. You've just done that right there, okay? The other thing is, I guess, the extension of identifying the counterproductive behaviours. And again, we want to look at, you know, affirming language, look at what we want to do rather than what we don't want to do, is to then create a behavioural framework off the back of that. So the language we use is we, we create a trademark. So how do we want to be viewed as a team? Ideally for us, we always try to work on three words. And then after you've identified those counterproductive behaviours, Let's identify four or five non-negotiable behaviours for us to be able to be the, the team that we aspire to be. And so if you can, as I said before, if you can engage your people in that process, I feel connected to it because I've played a role in creating it, then hopefully what happens is we as a team actually really 
buy into that. We reward people for doing it and we challenge people when they don't. And then I guess the extension of that is, you know, if the if the collective team really buy into that, then when new people join the team, they get inducted into that as well. So that that real clarity of expectation for us is is so critical because as I've said before, it it takes the the uncertainty or the the guesswork rather than assuming this is how we do things. Well, we actually sit down and we talk about it and we know, and then we can start to you know really build the team off the back of that through um, through the reward and challenge that we do beyond that. I'm sure most of the listeners uh, sitting there listening in and thinking that all makes complete sense, particularly the way you you frame it. I just want to have a chat about that point about challenging people. You said before, walk past somebody, hey, that's not how we behave, that's not part of our trademark, whatever framing that we use. I would assume that a lot of people will still feel uncomfortable about changing their behaviour to start to call people out, particularly if, if we're trying to change the culture. Is it fair to say that that actually gets easier the more you do it or is it still always going to be a difficult conversation? Again, you go back to the relationship that's that you build with people. It's almost like a progression, and and what you've got to do is you've got to try and push the relationship along. You know, and, and your example before was a great one. So, for for Anne to sit down with you and go and have a coffee with you, and clearly, you know, she's thought about what she wanted to say, how she was going to say it, and the response that you gave her was proving that you're open to those types of conversations. So I would have thought that the next conversation, she wouldn't have to ring you, organise a meeting, take you off site to have that conversation. It just would have happened in the moment. And so that's the, like, when giving feedback, that what we fear, and, and one of the reasons why we don't give feedback is because I'm not sure how you're going to respond. So that ability to be able to test the water a bit you know, and, and have the conversation again, often, more often than not, we're rehearsing it, we're, you know, we're going it over in our mind, we're practicing it. Um, one of the other challenges is if I'm, if, again, the example you gave about M is she's rehearsed, she's practiced, you haven't, so you mightn't be as ready for it, right? But if you can create that framework, then, and we talk about the fact that we're actually going to have conversations about this, then I shouldn't be as surprised when someone talks to me about that. And that's the beauty of a framework of behaviour. It gives you something to refer back to when having that conversation. And the relationship, which is the other bit that we've spoken about, which the you know, mutual trust and respect, we talk about having strong professional relationships. And that means I, I might not be your best friend, but we've got to have a level of mutual trust and respect. So both of those things, the, the framework of behaviour and the relationship, allow us to have what we, uh, what we call genuine conversation. But if, there's, if we don't have the clarity of expectation, then it, it will be a surprise. And if I don't have the trust and respect, you might not take it the way that it's intended. Great points. Simon, I'm fairly familiar with your work. A lot of the listeners probably aren't, but I know that through your work, you make use of the situational leadership model. For the listeners, can you explain to them what it is and and then how it can be used to empower pharmacy staff to do all those things that you're talking about, take ownership of their their roles and responsibilities? It was a, a model from the 70s, actually. Paul Hersey and Ken Blanchard came up with it. And for for us, and I, I guess 
we're always talking about that the follower and the situation should dictate your leadership style, not you. But very often we have a preferred style of which of, of how we like to lead, but it should be dictated by your follower essentially. And so basically the, you know, they talk about the your follower readiness, you know, which is how ready is your follower? And that would be take into account the the level of knowledge or training that they've got, the willingness that they have to perform the task, and also the security they have, which might include, you know, how new they are or how long they've been in their role for. Uh, it might also include, um, you know, the confidence and the belief. It also might mean, you know, their level of security or the, the level of trust and respect that they have with you as their leader. And then the other thing that you've got to throw into the pot is the urgency of the task. And basically, the model just talks to the fact that it's okay. Like people fear telling people what to do because they don't want to be viewed as a micromanager. And when I'm talking about this model, I always say that you'll only be a micromanager if you're going to stay in the, the I tell style of leadership forever. But if your intent is to try and progress your, your follower or, or, or the person that you're leading to get them to a stage where you can delegate to them, then you won't be telling them what to do for very long. All right. But new person joins your team, you know, and the, and the, the urgency of the task is really high. I might just have to be directive and say, Hey, I need you to get this done. This is how you do it. And I need you to get it done by, you know, in the next hour or so. Okay. I've been really clear with the expectation. I've given them a really clear time frame, and I've told them exactly what has to be done. Then the next step of the model is that, you know, the, the, we've got a bit more time now, the urgency isn't there and, and we can start to invest a bit more in the relationship. So this is where I might sit down with that, with that follower and start to engage them and, and ask them some questions around how they think they might perform the task. So um, the, this style uh, of leadership is what they call the coaching style. So it's we're going to have a conversation, but at the end of the conversation, as the leader, I'm still going to make the decision because um, that follower isn't quite ready yet to make the decision. The next step is, is what they call a supportive style of leadership, which is, again, we're going to have a conversation but at this point, I'm going to let you, the follower, make the decision. All right? You've got more knowledge. You know, you've had more training. I, I know that you're willing. Um, I know that there's a level of confidence and, and security in you to be able to do it. And so I'm just going to give you another level of, of responsibility and ownership. And then the final um, style is, is the delegation style, which is basically, you know, you've got absolute trust in your, in your follower. And it's, I need this done. You know, there's no direction whatsoever. I'm, I'm delegating the task. And essentially, you go and do it how you choose to do it, okay? The really important thing about the model is that, that some people fear the delegation as well because they think it's going to be a free-for-all. It's people doing whatever they want whenever they want. But it's about the responsibility for that specific task. It's not... They, got, they get to do whatever they want whenever they do it. But for this specific task, I'm going to back you in that you can do it in the way that you would feel it be best done. Okay. And so it's just that mindset of how am I going to progress my people to get them to a stage where they can be empowered and I can truly delegate to them and they can start taking real ownership and responsibility for the decisions that, that they make. And therefore, that allows me, you know, 
not to be at work all the time. Well, that allows me to be able to, you know, go and have a lunch break and and know that, you know, I've got people there that are going to be able to manage the different situations or, or challenges that might come up. I think it's probably an important point. I'd love your views on this, that if if I personally was to delegate something to somebody, I'm not making a clean cut. It doesn't mean that that person can't still come back and, and talk to me and get advice. They may choose to or they may choose not to, but I'm not completely cutting them off and just going, figure it out and let me know at the end, am I? No, absolutely. And that's why the supportive style of leadership and the and the coaching style of leadership, that's where you're investing in the relationship, okay? So I'm actually sitting down with that follower and I'm, and I'm engaging them. So what I'm doing through that process is I'm actually starting to give them the the safety and the security to know that they can come and have conversations with me. Because what happens if you move too fast from, you know, the directive style of leadership to the delegation, we haven't spent the time building the relationship. And that's where you get, sometimes you get stuck because that person isn't ready yet to be delegated to, but they also haven't built the relationship with you to be able to feel safe enough to be able to come back and ask some questions. All right. The, the challenge clearly with the, that process is time. You know, that, I've got to spend time building the relationship, you know, coaching them, supporting them before I can get to the delegation stage. But, and, and often, you know, I've worked with teams that have a sink or swim mentality. And we just, we know that it's, it's really hard to get people full stop in any business at the moment in terms of the, the, the climate. But it's also, it's hard to get good people. So why wouldn't we want people to be able to swim rather than throwing them in the deep end and, and hoping for the best? So if I can invest the time in my people to, to build their skill set, build their confidence, okay, build the relationship with me, then at the end of the day, that investment of time is going to pay off for me in the long run. The other challenge that comes to mind is because when you talk about that situational leadership model, it makes complete sense. I'm assuming that the person has got the skills to be moved to a delegation situation. But what about when they lack motivation? How does the model change versus when you've got somebody with great skills and, and you can move them to delegation versus somebody who just lacks the motivation? How does the model change? Yeah, well, it doesn't really because that's where the, the, the other element that I spoke about is the willingness, which is the attitude. So how willing is this person to do the task? And so if people are unwilling, as we said before, the attitude's poor, then you go back to, well, I'm going to tell you what to do and I'm going to set really clear deadlines. I'm going to set, I'm going to actually going to direct you. This is how it needs to be done. And as we said before, and this is again where it gets challenging, that you as a leader might make the decision that this person isn't going to shift. So I might have to make the tough call on them and, and let them go. You know, and it's just that... Like one of my colleagues has a line, he says, it's easy when it's easy and it's hard when it's hard. And, it, and it's so true that, you know, if, if you know that you've got, um, you can replace that person really, really easily, you know, it's, there's people looking for jobs everywhere, then it's easy to let that person go. But if you've, you know, if you're going to be down a person, it's going to impact, um, potentially impact your business in a really significant way, you're probably more inclined to, to hang on to that person. You know, but again, if if you're going to go down this path of, of high performance and, you know, culture and, um, you know, trying to give your team the, the opportunity to really engage and, and buy into what you're doing, then 
we use those those negative centers of influence can start to really have a detrimental impact on your on your business and on your team. Let's bring this situational leadership model to life, so to speak. Are you able to share any examples of how managers have successfully empowered their staff using the situational leadership approach? There's numerous. Any team that invests in their people and gives gives them the time to be able to develop their skills, their knowledge, again, um, focus on on their attitude, is we, we're going to get the shift in performance. But the best example I can give you, and it's not a work-related one, but it's, it was teaching my daughter how to ride a bike. So, you know, when she started riding a bike, she started riding a bike with training wheels. Okay, so... And I was, you know, taught, telling her what she needed to do in terms of, you know, steering and pedalling and all those sort of things. And we never went out on the road. It was done on the driveway. Then when we took the training wheels off, when we got to the next stage, you know, where she, you know, we lifted the training wheels a bit so she had a bit more ownership and responsibility. We then go to the pump because I know that if we go on the road and she falls off her bike, She's going to lose a lot of confidence and belief, you know, skin off those sort of things. So we went to the park where there's grass, okay? And as the leader in that situation, I'm holding on to the, the bottom of her seat, all right? And when I'm doing that, I'm talking to her. I'm still coaching her. I'm, you know, eyes up, don't look at the ground, keep pedaling, keep your momentum. You know, I'm, I'm talking to her. The next step is that I take my hand off the bike Okay, but I'm still there. I'm still talking to her. I'm still, you know, encouraging her, telling her what to do. And I'm not yet delegating to her riding a bike because delegation for me would be that she can ride to the park on her own. She's not ready for that. So we go for rides, but I ride at the front. She rides behind me. And I'll continually look back just to check on how she's going because when I come to a stop sign, I've still got the ability to be able to say, hang on, we're coming to a T intersection, you just, you just stop. It was funny, I, I live at Burley Heads and uh, I took my two daughters for a ride down the Esplanade one day and I sort of, you know, they're, they're pretty confident on their bikes, we're on the footpath and I'm thinking, oh, they'll, they'll be fine. And next minute I look back and my, my middle daughter, she's five, is riding along looking at the top of the trees and going all the way around this path. okay? And so... You know, people ride up, um, ride scooters up the Esplanade there on the on the footpath, and they're going really, really fast. And it was just another, I guess, learning or lesson for me that she's still not ready yet. So I, I have to be, you know, more aware, making sure that I'm constantly checking on on how she's going. So for me, that's been, you know, the best example I think in terms of situational leadership. And so again, as as leaders, you know as a leader of a small business, what do training wheels look like for you? You know, what does holding the bike, letting go, that type of thing? And and knowing that, you know, for me, as I said before, true delegation is when I've got absolute trust in my girls to be able to do it. You know, and I'm constantly looking for evidence to say, are they ready? Because I want to get them to the stage where they can ride to school in the morning on their own. That's my aim. And I think as a leader of a small business, if you've got that mindset that your aim is to get your people to a stage where they perform at the same level, whether you're there or not, you know, and 
you're able to go on leave, you're able to go and have days off and know that the business isn't going to fall away when when you're not there. Um, if you're intense that, then you'll you'll have that mindset of that constant development for your people. That's the mindset, the outcome for a business owner to be able to maybe initially just go out for, for lunch and, and leave the staff by themselves, might be going on holidays or not working on the weekends. That's that's what the, the, the business owner is focusing on, focusing on where you need to get the staff to that point that they need to get to so that the business owner can have that outcome. How important is it, do you think, to be explicit with the staff to say, I want to get you to this point? Not necessarily, hey, I want to get you to this point so I can go to Fiji for two weeks, but how, how important is it to be explicit with the staff to be able to say, I really want to grow you to this point? Ultimately, people know when you're investing in them, you know, and, and again, it's that that feeling that, you know, you're giving me the time, you're giving me the opportunity, you know, you're, you're challenging me, you're getting me out of my comfort zone, you're giving me more opportunities. But I think 100% what you said, and I know when I brought someone into my business, I was really explicit. And because, you know, everyone in our business is aware of that model, I would tell him the stages I was at. And he, he actually says to me that the supportive style of, of leadership when you know, I would ask him questions, but make him decide. He said that was the most frustrating thing for him because he just wanted the answer and I would refuse to give it to him. And I would just say to him, what do you think? What are you going to do? Right? I'd ask questions, but at the, end of the, at, at the end of that conversation, I would say to him, you're making the decision. And it was that, that fine line, and this is one of the other challenges when you get to that, that, that stage of leadership is, if he made a mistake and it was a really big one, then you can actually lose your people in some way, shape or form because their confidence gets dented so much that they regress really significantly. But for me, and this is where you go back to what we spoke about, different tasks, all right? So the, the importance of the task might dictate the level of ownership and responsibility. So if it was going to be something significant that might impact our business in a really major way, then I wouldn't let him make the decision, okay? But if it was going to be something that if it, if it worked out either way, it wasn't going to have a really significant impact on, on the business, it would be a great learning opportunity for him, then you're making the decision here, all right? And so, again, that's one of the, I guess, the challenges with leadership. There's, there's so many different factors that come into play when you're making your decisions, um, but... You know, in the right environment, we know that we're all we're going to make mistakes. Your staff will make mistakes. You'll make mistakes as a leader. And as I said before, depending on the severity of those mistakes, um, we can recover from. If the listeners are inspired by this, what I think has been a fantastic chat today, are there any specific training or development programs pharmacy owners can undertake or or maybe implement to support their employees who are underperforming? Or as I ask that question, I think you know, this whole conversation has been much more about the positivity rather than managing underperforming staff. So in the the spirit of, of improvement and, and reaching our best, give the business a plug, let us know what you can do. We've got, a, I guess, a couple of programs that we run, or there's, there's sort of three elements to our work, but the, the main one for us is what we call our performance improvement program, which is a, a long-term approach to our performance improvement and culture change. Um, 
the other one that we run and most states we would run uh, two or three of these every year is what we call a high performance leadership program so that's where the, the performance improvement program is is looking at the team the high performance leadership program is looking at, at you as an individual leader and and what we often do is bring a a group of people in from all different industries and all different places and basically um, talk leadership and and give you know throw some in so some different tools some different models that we get them to think about um, but ultimately the the participants are really at the end of that program are really clear on their own leadership philosophy they've identified their strengths and their gaps as as leaders and then they get to work on whatever it is that they're going to focus in on um, the other thing that uh, I guess service that we offer is just the the one-on-one -on -one personal coaching stuff so they're probably the three three major ones um, but as I said like our our website uh, would have all that information on it um, and if anyone you know even you know because of the relationship that I've had with the pharmacy guild over the last six years that I'm always open just to a chat. You know, if people uh, have some concerns or issues that they want to talk through, then then there's the opportunity to do that as well. Outstanding. Now, last question before we start to round this out. How can pharmacy owners balance the need for accountability and performance improvement in their team with maintaining a, a supportive and engaging work environment? You don't have to have one or the other. I think that they actually support each other really well. That if you've got a, a really supportive um, environment where people are collaborating, working together, helping each other, then you're going to get the performance. You know, I, the, one of the great examples, I, I worked with a logistics company um, a few years ago and I was working with the truck drivers and I just said, if, if you parked your truck and it was lunchtime, and you were walking across the yard to go and have your lunch, and one of your really close mates was tying down their load, what would you do? And the guy said, oh, I'd stop and help them tie it down. I said, if you were, same scenario, but the person that you were, walked past that you didn't like or you didn't have a relationship, what would you do? And they just said, keep walking and go and have lunch. All right, so that ability to be able to build the connection with people you know, build that really supportive environment where we want to help each other, you know, where, and I think the other factor that comes into play is that we're human beings at the end of the day. So, you know, we have things that go on and, and challenges that we face in our lives. Um, you know, we had a, a, had a session with a client yesterday where midway through the day, one of the, the participants uh, who's a mum got a phone call from the school saying her daughter was sick. So she had to leave to go and pick up her daughter from school. So, you know, if if we're really invested in each other and we're invested in the business and we feel like we're connected in all of those things, then we'll do more to be able to help each other and support each other. So there's a for us that, you know, mechanics and dynamics, if we can have a really strong, you know, the, the dynamics are really strong, then it will actually start to really drive the mechanics within your business. So they they just support each other so so well. Simon, it's been a fascinating and really useful discussion today. If people want to keep it going, connect with you, find out more about how you can help, what can they do? Where can they go? Either website, leadingteams.net.au. Um, also, my, my email is just simon at leadingteams.net.au. So if anyone wants to reach out, drop me a line or, or hit up our, our webpage and, and put a, um, 
a request in there, then then we'd be able to sit down and have a chat. Simon Fletcher, partner and facilitator at Leading Teams. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your advice and insights on empowering pharmacy success in navigating performance with the situational leadership model. Awesome. Thank you, Daniel. That concludes our insightful conversation with Simon Fletcher on managing underperformance and harnessing the power of the situational leadership model. We hope you've gained valuable knowledge and practical tips to enhance your leadership skills and elevate your pharmacy business. Remember, teamwork is the fuel that drives business success. By implementing the principles of situational leadership, empowering your staff and fostering a collaborative environment, you can create a dynamic team that not only overcomes challenges, but also achieves remarkable results. A reminder that if you know someone who you would like to hear on our podcast, then you can dob them in by emailing communication at guild.org.au. Stay tuned for more inspiring episodes coming your way soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of the PBCN podcast. And just a reminder that if you know someone who you would like to hear on our podcast, you can dob them in by emailing communications at guild.org.au. I've been your host, Daniel Oyston, and you've been listening to episode 129 of the PBCN podcast. The PBCN podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For more resources, to access support or advice, or to view this episode's show notes, visit guild.org.au.